Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple of months off the podcast for work. As soon as he's back, we'll jump right back into A Song of Ice and Fire with Sansa's third chapter, In a Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I'm picking up where I left off last time with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last time, I finished up book four of The Lord of the Rings along with guest host Benjamin Nielsen. This week, we're going to jump into book five of Lord of the Rings with the first chapter, Minas Tirith. And since this is a very long and dense and important chapter, we're going to be doing it in two episodes. So this episode is going to cover the first half of the chapter, Pippin's introduction to the city and to Denethor, and then we'll cover the rest of the chapter next week. So after spending book four with Frodo, Sam, and Gollum, book five jumps back to the characters we spent book three with. And book five is basically a sequel to book three. It's the bigger, better version. It's the, it's the Terminator 2 of high fantasy. And you can see parallels throughout. Book 3 kicks off with Pippin being carried off by orcs in a confrontation with Boromir. Book 5 begins with Pippin being carried off by Gandalf in a confrontation with Boromir's father Denethor. And I loved how Book 3 ended. There was that wonderful passage as Pippin and Gandalf rode off. As he fell slowly into sleep, Pippin had a strange feeling. He and Gandalf were still as stone, seated upon the statue of a running horse, while the world rolled away beneath his feet with a great noise of wind. Chapter 1 of Book 5 follows up on that imagery. Pippin is unsure of whether he's awake or still dreaming. Kind of both. He's being born back into the past, into the mists of story. Everything here is abstract for him. Sky and stars and stone, all blurred together by the unnatural speed. Pippin can't even tell what time it is. And you gotta imagine, this is how Gandalf feels all the time. Everything this great rushing blur around him as he races towards destiny, stopping to reassure random mortals before he keeps going, just trying to keep up with the tide. It's a great contrast to how book four started, with Frodo and Sam in the Emmy Muiel, fighting for every miserable inch of ground, and now Pippin is going so fast he can't keep up. What really wakes Pippin up is the memory of the Eye, the great Eye of Sauron he saw in the Palantir when we left off in book three. They're riding toward that eye now, like Frodo and Sam. And that seems to awaken menacing voices on the wind, like nature is turning against them. What horrible country is this? Well, it's not Mordor, it's Gondor. But there is reason to fear. They see the signal fires being lit, those sparks in the darkness, and they're sweeping back in the opposite direction. A warning of the war they're riding into. It's a great way to build the tension for the audience. Like, oh, that's how bad things are up ahead. They're desperately getting warning to the people we just left behind. The signals also foreshadow Denethor's death. Another fire that he lights. Pippin, of course, doesn't really care about the world-building details. He only stirs when Gandalf mentions the Seeing Stones. And Tolkien often uses the hobbits this way as a kind of audience avatar so we can understand what the important takeaway is. Pippin is as ignorant of Gondor as we are, so we learn along with him. It's been a long time since those signal fires blazed, and Gandalf tells us they were basically a replacement for the Seeing Stones. It's a sign of what Gondor has lost, and now it has to beg for help. But it's also set up for Denethor having one of those Seeing Stones. He's gone through the same process as Pippin. A confrontation with dangerous knowledge. Even as Gandalf tells us that Minas Tirith is as safe as any place these days, far more so than where Frodo and Sam are, the signs of a disturbance are already there. Frodo told us that Minas Tirith could become Minas Morgul. 
They're mirror images, and Tolkien emphasizes that by telling us that Frodo is watching the same moon from afar. As they ride closer to Minas Tirith, they find a crumbling wall being hastily repaired. Like the signal fires, this is something that hasn't been done in a while. Gondor is growing rusty and forgetful in its old age. It's falling apart at the worst possible time, fitting everything Faramir told us in Athelion. And again we have the parallels with Book 3. There are suspicious guards here, just as there were at Edoras and Rohan. Gandalf is called Mithrandir again, fitting this domain. His name is like a password. Pippin, it turns out, is the sticking point here. They don't want strangers any more than the Rohirrim did. They only want fighters. They're being pushed into this hard-edged, killer-be-killed mindset, and Pippin just doesn't look useful in that context. But all that is gold does not glitter. Or, as Gandalf delightfully puts it, valor cannot be computed by stature. We just saw Sam's valiance despite his small size, fighting Shelob at the end of Book 4. What matters is what you do, the choices you make. And Pippin has taken part in wilder adventures than this random guy. I love, though, how Gandalf oversells his case, calling Pippin by his formal name Peregrine to make him sound less childish, and also calling him a man. He means it as a compliment, man as opposed to youth, but both Pippin and the guards take it literally, man as in human being. Pippin doesn't need to live up to that image. He's a hobbit and proud of it, he says, and he's honest about his valor. He's only brave when he has to be. That honesty, more than any resume, endears him to the gate guards, as it will to Denethor and Baragond inside the city proper. The men of Gondor don't know what a hobbit is. They only know the term halfling, which defines hobbits in their terms. They're half as high as us, we're the center of the universe, and they're half as tall as we are. As always in Lord of the Rings, language reveals perspective and identity. Halflings are mostly known around here for being the mysterious figures in the prophetic dream, shared by Boromir and Faramir. That's why Gandalf didn't want to call Pippin a hobbit, because he doesn't want to get into how that prophecy worked out until they're talking to Denethor. But Pippin, being Pippin, gives the game away immediately, saying he was with Boromir when he died. Gandalf puts his fool-of-a-took face on in response, but Ingold the gate guard says they already knew about that, due to strange portents, which the reader already knows about from what Faramir told Frodo and Sam. So even though they're working on grounded military matters, there's still this kind of mystical presence going on, which will also fit Denethor. Pippin may be hasty, as Treebeard would say, but he's also earnest and courteous, offering what support he can in Boromir's stead. As when he was a prisoner of the Urukai, Pippin feels ashamed of himself. Gandalf can brag him up all he wants, but Pippin does feel useless relative to everyone else he meets. That shame can fuel resentment, a desire to prove himself more important. That's what drove him to look into the Palantir, and we'll soon see that Denethor is motivated by that exact same feeling. I'm a secondary character in someone else's story, and I'm sick of it. But that shame can also be used in a positive way. Pippin wants to help out the people of Minas Tirith because he feels responsible for their loss of Boromir. So he swears himself to service, first unofficially to Ingold, and then formally to Denethor. Back in Rohan, Merry will soon be swearing himself to Theoden's service. And as at Theoden's house, the mortals confuse cause and effect when it comes to Gandalf, saying he only comes with bad tidings. Gandalf says, yet again, that this is because he only shows up when people really need his help. He's already helped Gondor more than they know. If it weren't for him, he says, they'd get no help from Rohan with those fire signals. Only another army of enemies issuing from Isengard. And that perfectly sets up the pivot point. Like, book three was a, a shaping operation. That was the appetizer, and now we're on to the main course. 
we get a strong geographic sense of the walls fanning out from Minas Tirith towards Osgiliath, so we can visually understand the Battle of Pelennor Fields later. These are fair and fertile townlands, a refuge behind the walls. Might remind us of the Shire at first, but then Tolkien tells us that Pelennor Fields are depopulated. Gondor is shrinking, aging, and those who are left are falling back on the city proper, or to the mountains and rivers beyond. Anything to get away from the east, the quote bleak shadow into which Frodo and Sam have vanished. In between the two realms lies the river. Tolkien writes that it carved the mighty valley to serve as a stage for battle and debate, like it was all on purpose. Everything we're seeing is orchestrated by nature, a presence watching our mortal struggles unfold, like the author himself. Minas Tirith appears like an extension of those natural processes. It looks like it was carved by giants out of the bones of the earth, an almost godlike power that reminds me of the wall in A Song of Ice and Fire. The city walls go from gray to white in the rising sun, symbolizing the return of the king, the upcoming transfer of power from Denethor to Aragorn. It also symbolizes Gandalf's journey from gray to white, restored to life as a vessel for light, here to help the mortals climb high, be their best selves. It reminds me of Frodo and Sam seeing the sunlight glimmer on the beheaded statue of the king at the crossroads. And speaking of which, Pippin sees the sun climb above the shadow and strike the white tower of Ecthelion, bringing it to life. It's a moment of awe-inspiring beauty, the opposite of the captured corrupted moonlight of Minas Morgul. It's an appropriately dramatic introduction for a location that has been built up throughout the story. We first heard about the realm of Gondor and its white city at the Council of Elrond at Rivendell, and we were made to feel two ways about it. As a pillar of strength, standing against the dark tide, and also as a husk of its former self, crumbling from within. We saw that struggle play out in personal terms with Boromir in Book 2, and with Faramir in Book 4. Here in Book 5, both turn out to be true. We're at a figurative crossroads in which Gondor could go one of two ways. It could reclaim its glory days and become stronger than ever due to the wisdom that comes from knowing how it fell. Or it could fulfill Frodo's prophecy and become a mirror of Minas Morgul, the cities grinning at each other across a wasteland. What will make the difference? Well, not really the enemy, whose armies will remain strong no matter what the men of Gondor do. The difference lies in the leadership of the city. Change is coming. That's what Lord of the Rings tells us. Time marches on, no matter what we do. That's what Gandalf tells the men of the city. He's here to see Denethor at the last gasp of his power, while his stewardship lasts, is how he puts it. Win or lose, it's all over. The Gondor you have known is dead, part of the past, part of the stories. Clinging to it will only bring ruin, which is what happens with Denethor. And the people of the city don't really know what to do with that. They don't know what to do with Gandalf. He's, he's a messenger and he brings signs and symbols to interpret from beyond. It's not too different from how the hobbits of the Shire reacted to Bilbo at his party at the beginning of the story. And that sense of a divine presence is there still in Minas Tirith. You got the, the seven levels of the city, lucky number seven, the, the religious sense of perfection and harmony often associated with that number. And with something that's striking about Minas Tirith relative to other settings in Lord of the Rings is how open it is, how out and proud. It's not hidden away like Lothlorien or the Shire. It's the only real urban setting of the story. As Gandalf and Pippin ride through the city, Tolkien describes how the gates are built at different angles, reminding us that this is not only a city, but a fortress, built with the knowledge that it will one day be invaded. It's been fighting a long defeat all along. 
The Citadel sits atop stone compared to a ship, just like Lothlorien, how Galadriel's refuge was compared to a ship. It's as if Minas Tirith is the ship that Elendil took from Numenor, a frozen remnant of a memory. It's a ship run aground, one that can't make its way back west, unlike the ship Frodo will take at the end. It's an expression of mortality. This is the best we can do on this fallen earth. Reshape it to fit the image of our longing for something more. The heights of Minas Tirith are dizzying, and that's impressive, but it could also give you vertigo. It's a long way to fall. If you build a ladder to heaven, what if you don't make it? Now, it seems at first like Tolkien is setting up the city to fall when he mentions that the only potential weak spot would be coming from behind, up and over the mountain. Uh, But then he tells us there are strong ramparts there, hiding the tombs of dead kings and lords. They sit between the city and the mountain. So the mountain represents the land of the dead, which fits perfectly because Aragorn is about to confront a civilization of ghosts underneath the mountain in this same range. Faramir told us that the downfall of men was linked to their obsession with death. Mortality is something that we can't overcome, no matter how proud and powerful we get. Sauron has repeatedly taken advantage of this weakness. So really, Tolkien is using the tombs as foreshadowing, but not of the city falling from without. It's going to fall from within, or at least Denethor will, in those tombs. Ancient Egypt is an obvious reference point here, the tombs of the pharaohs. Tolkien wrote in one of his letters, The Numenorians of Gondor were proud, peculiar, and archaic, and I think are best pictured in Egyptian terms. The love of and power to construct, the gigantic, the massive, and in their great interest in ancestry and tombs. For our POV Pippin, the reference point here is Isengard, where he just was. And he thinks, wow, this is so much better, this is so much stronger and more beautiful than Isengard. Yet what really gives Minas Tirith life, what makes it different from Isengard under Saruman, are the people. And there are fewer and fewer of those. This sense of decay, of, of a coming implosion, George R. R. Martin borrowed this for Volantis in A Song of Ice and Fire. And that was his version of Byzantium. And Minas Tirith, I think, is heavily influenced by Byzantium, but also Rome. This is Tolkien's Rome in the 4th century. The splendor decaying, the fall coming close. Pippin looks at buildings and realizes there's more focus on the names of people who lived there in the past than the people who live there now. Tolkien again links this story to Frodo and the Philian, saying that the same sunlight is shining on them both. Pippin sees the statue of a king looking at its head, just like the statue of the king that's lost its head in Frodo's story. All of these are things stuck in the past, and Mordor is coming for all of this pride. The guards of the Citadel wear, quote, heirlooms from the glory of older days. The design of their helmets influenced by seabirds, again that longing for the sea that defines the Numenorians, worn now only by those who guard where their tree once grew. And the tree is the ultimate symbol of Gondor's current situation. It sits among a sweet fountain and a sward of green grass, nature coexisting with man, innocence and beauty preserved here above the world. But the tree, at the heart of it all, is dead. You can't be hopeful in Minas Tirith anymore, because death is staring you right in the face the failure of the promise to deliver Middle-earth from Sauron. The shadow is only still out there because the men who built this country, built this city, failed to do the right thing. Pippin remembers the rhyme Gandalf murmured, like the ancient runes he saw in the city. Seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. Seven like the walls, their connection to heaven, where those stars burn, the power from which those stones arose. But they only had the one tree, and now it's dead. Inside the citadel, it's all cool, echoing shadows, Tolkien writes. Perfect phrase. It's cool instead of warm like the sun outside. 
It's echoing because it's all empty in here. And there are shadows because the enemy is already present. The call is coming from inside the house. And Gandalf warns Pippin, establishing a contrast to Rohan. Theoden is a kindly old man who treated the hobbits with courtesy. Denethor is not like that at all. He's proud, Gandalf says, and subtle, letting the audience know there's a lot going on beneath the surface. Denethor is of more ancient lineage than Theoden, but he's not called a king. And that's the source of his bitterness. For all his power and pride, he's a stand-in, whereas Theoden is the leader of his people. So Denethor is, in part, a version of Saruman. He has his own tower he sits atop, all arrogant and bitter, and he gets his own showdown with Gandalf. Like Saruman, Denethor always wears a mask. Gandalf says the steward will hunt for intelligence under the cover of his love for Boromir, and he will think of Pippin as a weak spot he can exploit. And that's what makes it so key that we get this chapter through Pippin's eyes specifically. He's trying to catch up to and keep up with these great and subtle minds. Again, he's an audience avatar. Gandalf says that Pippin has no time now to learn all the history that would make sense of this. He was too busy wasting time in the Shire. That's not exactly fair. Even if Pippin had wanted to learn about Gondor, who would he have learned it from? And isn't the idea of Gondor that it fights Mordor so you don't have to, allowing the Shire to stay innocent? Gandalf is harsh because he's tense. He's been dreading this encounter on its own terms, let alone having to babysit Pippin throughout. Only now does Gandalf make plain the primary source of the tension. They traveled from Rivendell with Aragorn. And if Aragorn ever comes to this city, it will be to replace Denethor. As Gandalf said, one way or another, the Gondor that Denethor knows and loves is dying. Just like his son Boromir, his great hope for the future. News of Aragorn will just be salt in that wound. You lost Boromir. But history will march on like he didn't matter. This desperate desire to matter, to give his life some shape and meaning, is what motivates Denethor more than anything. He's driven mad by the same questions plaguing the hobbits in Book 4. What will they say about me after I'm gone? Is my life going to be worthy of story and song, or will I be forgotten? Time is the ultimate enemy here, more so even than Sauron, and those tombs were built in defiance of time. As with Theoden, Tolkien lingers on his lavish description of the space to contrast it with the withered man at the heart of it all. Great pillars reach to the roof, carved with images of animals Pippin doesn't even recognize. Everything here is stone and marble. No hangings, nothing made of wood, nothing that might rot and reveal how time conquers all. Pippin's eye is drawn to the row of kings, immortalized as statues, reminding him of the Argonath. This is the image of Gondor, the story they tell themselves about themselves. An unbroken chain of being, the glory of the White Tower catching the sun with the sound of silver trumpets, like a song brought to life. It draws the eye to the throne, the center of gravity, the font of justice from which all goodness is supposed to flow, and it's empty. Only a canopy, shaped like a crown. Only the image of a tree and flower, no longer the real thing. The dream is denied, and so we're left alone with Denethor, an old man mourning his son, again like Theoden. Scholar Jane Chance argued that Tolkien intended Theoden and Denethor as contrasting images of leadership. Their names are almost anagrams, they're mirror images. They have this Arthurian Fisher King backdrop in common, the sense that the withering of the land is mirrored in the withering of the Lord. One of the big differences here, though, is that there's no worm tongue. Denethor has no one present in the room, urging him on to his worst self. Denethor's darkness comes from within, and so it's a lot harder for Gandalf to try and redeem him. 
And it's interesting that Pippin that Pippin's first thought about Denethor is that he looks less like Boromir than Aragorn, the image of the man who will replace him. He's looking at a black stone with a black glance, as Tolkien writes. He's already lost in the shadow. He knows the hour is dark, but he's focused on his own internal darkness, like King Lear, the cloud upon his soul. His only hope was Boromir, and Boromir is gone. I'll come back to that King Lear comparison when we get to Denethor's downfall. In terms of A Song of Ice and Fire, Denethor is like a fusion of Tywin and Stannis. He's stoic, he's stern, focused on his own competence, and uninterested in personal affection. He's got the poisoned family dynamics of Tywin and the fiery doom of Stannis. Here, Denethor focuses on Pippin as a witness to Boromir's death. He cares more about the story of the dead than the future of the living. And that's sad, but it's also selfish. Grief as all-consuming. He says that he wishes Faramir had gone instead of Boromir, ignoring the fact that Boromir chose to go, Gandalf reminding Denethor that Boromir would have insisted. Boromir, Gandalf says, was a man who took what he wanted. And the subtext here is that Boromir would not have saved the day, as Denethor thinks. Denethor passed on this desperate pride, which led Boromir to betray Frodo, where Faramir held fast. Speaking of Faramir, now we get that story about the breaking of the horn from Denethor's perspective. But where Faramir was moving on in terms of the model of martial masculinity, as I talked about in my episodes on The Window in the West, Denethor is stuck in the old ways. How could Boromir have fallen such a mighty warrior where Pippin is still alive? Under that question, another question. How could hobbits bear the ring where men always seem to fail? And that insult makes Pippin forget his fear. Even the mightiest of men can be brought low by an arrow, he says, as with Isildur. Death comes for us all. Yet while Denethor sees Boromir's death as a meaningless outrage, Pippin honors Boromir's last stand. He feels an obligation to live up to Boromir's memory, like Boromir was one of those statues. Now we know the full story of what went down with Boromir, but that doesn't make Pippin's perspective invalid. Boromir really did try to save him, after all. Pippin's own pride has been pricked by Denethor, who seems to be implying that Pippin was not worth saving, not if it meant Boromir dying. Denethor will later say that he wishes Faramir had died in Boromir's place. No life is worthy of living up to his ideal. Even Boromir is not who Denethor thought he was. No one is. So Pippin decides to prove himself worthy by offering up his sword in Boromir's stead. No longer will I be baggage, a fool of a took who doesn't know enough to contribute. Whatever I can do, I will. I will put myself on the line like Boromir did. And when Gandalf formally introduces Pippin, he introduces him as Peregrine, son of Paladin. That's Pippin's dad's name, Paladin, like a knight. And this is Pippin becoming a knight. That breaks through Denethor's icy reserve, at least a little. Tolkien calls it a cold sun on a winter's evening, the last gasp of the light inside Denethor. He admits that appearances aren't everything. Again, all that is gold does not glitter, pointing to the humble hidden heroism of Aragorn rather than the brazen brawn of Boromir. And there's a connection here to the history and heritage Denethor loves. Pippin's sword was once wielded by the men of the north, Denethor's kin. But he got that sword from the Barrow Downs. And Denethor's regime is increasingly feeling like a Barrow Down waiting to happen, right? A tribute to the death of kings, rather than a hope for their return. So Pippin swears himself to service. Not something we've seen much of in Lord of the Rings, not in detail like this. Both his oath and Denethor's response are full of contradictions, opposites coming together to represent the range of demands this makes on both of them. You will speak or be silent. You will come or you will go. You will live or you will die. 
You will do any of these extremes anything so long as it serves Gondor. Denethor, in turn, pledges to treat loyalty with love and disloyalty with vengeance. It's a warning shot across the bow, and it's one that puts all the responsibility on Pippin, leaving open the question, what should he do if Denethor proves unworthy of these vows? Pippin's first service rendered is telling stories. Naturally, that's what Lord of the Rings is all about. Denethor plays the honorable host, having them sit, making sure they get food and drink, but he's toying with Gandalf. Just as the wizard warned, Denethor is using Pippin as a pawn to diminish Gandalf's importance, while, as Pippin realizes, Gandalf grows angry and impatient. The wizard gives Denethor a quick plot summary of Book 3. Theoden has fought a huge battle, Isengard has fallen, and I shattered Saruman's staff like the badass I am. Doesn't that matter more than sitting around telling stories of the dead? Denethor says that, yes, all that's important, but he already knows enough for, quote, my own counsel against the menace of the East. And that line takes on more weight when you know what he's really talking about. Denethor has been using a palantir to basically duel Sauron with his mind, foreshadowed by him mentioning how even though the seeing stones are lost, messages come to him anyway. There's a really creepy moment when he's talking about the stone and glances at Pippin, his eyes shining. It's never confirmed, but it seems to suggest that Denethor knows Pippin also looked into a stone. We surrendered to the same temptation, you and I. We fell into the same well, like the tortured empathy between Frodo and Gollum in Book 4. This is why Denethor is driven to despair. He's been staring down the Great Eye, which in a way is also what he's doing here. He's got a staring contest going with Gandalf. The tension's so thick, Pippin is worried the invisible line between them might burst into flame like Sauron's eye. Pippin sits back and looks at both of them, thinking Denethor looks more like a wizard should look in the stories and songs he's used to. Denethor looks more beautiful, more powerful. But then again, Boromir looked more like a righteous warrior king than Aragorn did. Denethor just reminded us you can't judge a book by its cover. Hidden depths matter more. And Pippin plums Gandalf's depths by some sense other than sight, he thinks. It's something more to do with the soul that can perceive his, quote, veiled majesty. Gandalf is wiser than Denethor, stronger, and older, much, much older. How old? Pippin suddenly realizes he has no idea how old Gandalf is, and wonders why he's never thought about it before. I know a lot of people don't like Gandalf the White as a character, they don't like the pivot to his resurrected self, but I do, and this is why. It calls attention to the fact that he's not actually a kindly old man. He's an immortal angel from the astral plane. The other characters have to reconcile that. Pippin realizes that Gandalf is beyond all the mortal history so obsessively maintained in this city. The question Pippin has to ask is not who is Gandalf, but what is Gandalf? If he came from outside Middle-earth, when will he go back? At the end, when the job is done, taking with him Frodo and Bilbo, the protagonists he's helped along the way. Denethor feigns humility at this point, claiming it's an old man's folly to focus on the memory of his beloved departed son. But Gandalf knows better than to fall for that. Denethor hasn't actually lost his mind to grief. Not yet. Instead, Denethor is using his grief as a disguise, deliberately ignoring Gandalf in order to send him a message. And what is that message? You're not the boss of me. That's what Denethor wants Gandalf to understand. You may have come to help, but you do so only on your terms, not mine which makes us rivals. Denethor believes his duty is to Gondor, and only to Gondor. He's not obliged to fit himself into Gandalf's master plan for Middle-earth. I'm in charge here, not you. 
unless the king should come again. And you get the sense that Denethor says those words without really hearing them. It's a mantra, nothing more. Just like how hobbits in the Shire still make occasional reference to the king without consciously thinking about the fallen kingdom of Arnor. It's a tradition passed down until it's disconnected from anything tangible. As Gandalf says, everyone here has lost hope in the return of the king. A spiritual crisis, like losing faith in the return of Christ. Denethor's tragic flaw is pride. And as per usual in tragedies, that flaw can be a strength under different circumstances. He's kept things together this long, after all. If Gondor had a lesser steward, Gandalf and Pippin would have arrived to find the city in ruins. Denethor has held the line, and he can't accept the idea that time is marching on from him and his, regardless of that sacrifice. He lacks the humility that defines a character like Sam, or, ultimately, Aragorn. Then Gandalf delivers his great parting shot. I'm a steward, too. You may think me arrogant, a chess master moving you around on the board, but I am not a king sent to rule Middle-earth. That's how Saruman thought the mark of his corruption. Gandalf's job is to care for those in danger, shielding seeds against the shadow so they can one day bear fruit. It's not about defending Gondor specifically, and that's why they're clashing now. Gandalf would not consider himself a failure if Gondor fell, as long as something lasted. Like the Shire, maybe, represented here by Pippin. Stewardship is what they're talking about, and stewardship is preservation. Keeping things going for the next generation. Standing tall against the ravages of time. For all Denethor's intelligence, for all his strength, he is failing at his appointed task. He is too proud to plant trees, if he isn't going to get to see them grow. This whole big, bright, shining, beautiful city is a tomb. Aragorn is going to have to bring it to life again. But only if Gandalf and Pippin can hold the line while the king descends to meet with the literal dead. So usually at the end of these Lord of the Rings episodes, I talk a little bit about the movie adaptations from Peter, Je- from Peter Jackson and company that came out around 20 years ago. But this episode is already running a little long. And next week when I wrap up this chapter, there's really nothing to talk about in terms of the movie adaptations because they didn't really touch that material. So I will talk about the movie introduction to Minas Tirith and Denethor next time. So that'll wrap us up for this week on The Lord of the Rings. Thank you so much for listening. If you get the chance, please rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and many more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. And you can follow me at PoorQuentin on Twitter. So next week, I'm going to be wrapping up this chapter as Pippin makes a couple new friends, sees folks coming in from all over Gondor to help defend the city, and then returns to Gandalf to learn that the sun is not going to rise again. So thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week with more of Book 5, Chapter 1 of The Lord of the Rings.